From CSB Studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, on the MTR Radio Network, this is the Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPLE.com. Right now it's about 5.06. Apologize for a little bit of a technical delay. But we're all ready to set, set to go today. A lot of stuff going on in Major League Baseball. Great finish um, planned over in, uh, in uh, Cincinnati as the Reds and the Giants are trying to finish off that series. Uh, plenty going on with that. I'm going to be joined in a little bit, hopefully, by uh, former Major League pitcher Terry Adams. Um, Later on today, I'll be joined by uh, Robert Ford, who's a broadcaster and writer for the Kansas City Royals. And uh, in the second hour, we're going to have uh, Dylan Owen, who's a uh, pitcher in the Mets organization, uh, ready to get some stuff going, man. Lots, Lots going on. Obviously, the Yankees with a tremendous win last day. Uh, with, coming back with uh, ninth inning, late, late game heroics with Raul Banez, and of course everything going on with him pinch hitting for for um, for A Rod and stuff like that. I'm just gonna take a quick thirty second break, man. Uh, I'm just gonna uh, be right back. Hold on. Welcome back. Pass Ball Show on TR Radio Network. Want to welcome in my first guest today. He's a former pitcher for the Chicago Cubs and the Philadelphia Phillies, and that is Terry Adams. Terry, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show on TR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, no problem, man. Just uh, trying to adjust the volumes here, man. I apologize about the little delay. Yeah. I saw you tried to call in a little before. All right, everything all good for you, man? What What are you up to nowadays now you stop playing? Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, just being a full-time father, uh, coaching a little bit high school ball at my, uh, my alma mater at Mary McGermott here in Sims, Alabama, and just got finished watching a pretty exciting game between the Reds and the Giants. So. Yeah, yeah, quite a finish, man. Uh, you know, the – the series, I think, uh, pretty much was was great all around. I mean, there's no question about it. I think all the games in this postseason have been tremendous, man. And if you're, you know, if you're a baseball fan, you gotta you gotta be watching it, man. There's no question about it. I mean, it, you know, whether you like, you know, you like any particular team, it's just fun to watch. You know, if you're a baseball fan. Yeah, there's been some. Uh, there's been some pretty good pitching. Uh, defense has been spotty here and there, but uh, overall, it's uh, it's been having some exciting comebacks, is which. Uh, which what playoff baseball is all about. You know, you haven't had really any dominated pitching, pitching performances except for maybe Carpenter yesterday for the Cardinals, but you've had some exciting uh, comeback home runs and ninth inning finishes and pitching duels in the ninth inning, and that's what people like to see in the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now, watch it end of that uh, Reds-Giants game. You, do you think the Reds are going to pull it off, man? I kind of I kind of thought something was going to happen there. Yeah, it looked like they had a had some pretty good opportunity. Um, I thought that uh, Scott uh, Scott Rowland, I thought he missed a couple of hanging sliders there that last bat. And uh, Bruce, you know, he he took about eight or nine pretty good hacks off of some uh, eighty-eight mile hour fastballs over the middle of the plate, but just couldn't uh, couldn't tee one off. I thought maybe they they poked one out of there. You know, Cincinnati's not a very big ballpark, so. I thought they had a chance maybe to pop one out of there with two guys ahead of Yeah, especially after he's fouling off all those pitches, man. I thought I thought it, I thought it was a r- right about time. I mean, you've seen so many Bruce home runs to win games in that stadium. I, I felt like there was one coming, man. But uh, you know, go, great game, great five game series. Giants end up moving on to the NLCS. 
Now, Terry, just getting back into your your playing career a little bit. You uh, you were dra- you were drafted uh, early on in the uh, what was it the nineteen ninety one draft taken by the Cubs. You started out at, like most pitchers as a starting pitcher. Uh, tell us a little bit about your transition between being a starting pitcher in the minors and then getting into you know the late game relief, which you kind of got to towards the end of your minor league career. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I was drafted out of high school as a starting pitcher and, and was starting pitcher for my first uh, three years in the minor leagues. Um, I had some shoulder problems, uh, just structural problems uh, in my shoulder. Being at a young age, uh, I really hadn't uh, developed, I guess, muscularly yet, and I had a uh, I had a bone shave down to give me a little bit of freedom from some impingement. And um, I still just wasn't really having any kind of dominant, dominant success at the uh, the high eight ball level. And um, um, I guess, you know, I just got, I got put in the bullpen kind of as I took it as kind of like punishment because back in those days we didn't have uh, closers or setup men in the minor leagues. You really weren't a starting pitcher back in the 90s. Uh, you really weren't a prospect. So, you know, I was pretty much put in the bullpen just to kind of sit down and I guess take my, my punishment or think about what I was doing wrong. And uh, I was kind of put into some closing closing spots there uh, towards some in the ball games, and my velocity ended up going up from like the low 90s to the upper 90s. And, and from there, I ended up being a closer in double A and triple A and had a one ERA. And, uh, you know, from there, um, kind of just got, got my name out there. Yeah, absolutely, man. And now, was there was there a turning point? Like, you, as, as you're pitching in there, like you said, like, you know, a lot of pitchers will take it as punishment, uh, being put in the bullpen, you know, that early in the, you know, maybe not that early, but, you know, overall throughout, throughout their minor league career when they've been a starter. But was, it, was there a certain time that kind of became a turning point and you, you realized, hey, maybe maybe I got a good chance to make the majors as a late-inning relief guy? Yeah, I think it was probably like the end of 94 season. Um, I was in my second year at Daytona Beach, uh, high A ball there at Florida State League, and um, Oscar Acosta was my pitching coach, and, and uh, he came up to me and was saying, you know, asking me, you know, how hard I thought I was throwing, and I, I had no idea. He said I was throwing like 96. And, uh, you know, I was just having my velocity was getting really good, and, and my arm was getting really strong from the surgery and all that, and, um and then, then after that, I was invited to go to like uh, um, the uh, the fall league there out in Arizona and play with a couple of guys like uh, Brooks Kieschnick and Doug Glanville and, and like guys like that. I'm from the Cubs organization, and I just uh, you know I took off from there. They ended up putting me on the roster that '94. You know went on went on strike, but I was end up being protected on the roster. And uh, from that that time on, I was pretty much labeled as the closer of the future because I developed a really good, you know, fastball up in the, in the high 90s and a slider. So um, I was just pretty much, you know, kind of got my prospect status at that point. Yeah, it definitely seemed like you did. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Terry Adams. Now, as you as you got into the majors in 96, you know, we started a little in 95, but 96 and 97, you actually got a chance to close some games in the 97 season. Um as you as you really got that run where you ended up with 18 saves that year, did did you really feel like that was the beginning of your career as a major league closer, or did you do was it something that really wasn't that certain yet? Well, I mean, I really wasn't ever given an opportunity to, to be a full time closer. Um, I guess it was predominantly just because of the the team that I played for. Um, you know, the Cubs are always you know, defined back in the day as the, you know, lovable losers or whatever. And, 
uh, we always went into the off season as uh, you know with our management style. I guess they always went out and tried to sign a uh, a named closer. Uh, I mean, since I was there from '95 till. 99, there was Randy Myers, uh, Doug Jones, uh, Rick Aguilera, um, uh, signed Mel Rojas to a three-year deal. They brought in Rod Beck, uh, Rob Dibble, Dwayne Ward was in camp one time. So I was never really, you know, given the opportunity to say, hey, here's the closer, you know, here's the win or lose. So I was always just the guy as like, I guess so to say, as a standby guy. I was set up, right-handed set up man. And when the closure didn't work out, they put me in that spot to get some saves. So I was really never really given the confidence or the pat on the back say, hey, man, you know, it's yours to lose, so here you go, take the reins. I was always just a fallback guy. Yeah, and overall, I mean, between, you know, you spot closing and doing, you know, your job in middle relief, you seem to do pretty well. Um, as, as you moved on to the Dodgers, you end up going back into the starting rotation, and you had a you know a very good season in 2001 where you're 12 and eight. You made 22 starts that year. Tell us a little bit about the transition back after you know coming in as a starter, you know getting used to the middle relief thing, and then going back to being a starter again in 2001. Yeah, um, I guess back in 2001, we had a, a rash of injuries: uh, Kevin Brown, um, Andy Ashby, Darren Dreifer. Um, I recall them getting uh, having some injuries throughout the year. Um, I believe Chando Park was basically maybe the only guy that really stayed in the rotation for that time. Uh, Eric Gagne was a young pitcher at that time. He was a rookie that was kind of up and down, in and out of the bullpen. He wasn't having really any success at all as, as being a starter. So um, Jim Tracy was the manager at the time and, and asked me, you know, if I'd like to try it or go out there and do it. And I said, sure, why not? And um, he just seemed to, to just give me, uh, I don't know, just some kind of a boost in, in the year. Um, had a good run at it, you know, there for a while and had some success. And, uh, you know, we didn't make the playoffs that year, but I kind of, you know, like I said, got my name out there again as uh, being just a guy that could, could perform at a, a lot of roles. Yeah, and uh, as, as you go through at that time, um, you, you kind of feel like, um, you know, maybe you're hitting, you know, as you're hitting your free agent years and stuff like that, it kind of uh, boosts the resume a little bit. You, know, you could do a little start and a little relief, you know, kind of opens up your options for a lot of uh, a lot of uh, teams. Was that something you were thinking about as you hit free agency? Yeah, I had, um, you know, if I recall at that time, I had some teams that wanted me just to stay in the um, setup man role, I guess the eighth, seventh, eighth inning role. And I had some teams like the Phillies that were looking at me, you know, as being a starter, um, trying to come in and be like maybe a third or fourth guy in the rotation. So. Yeah, it was, it was kind of like, you know, back and forth, just, you know, I guess seeing, you know, what I wanted to do. And at that time, I felt like I was having some success in being a starter and, and wanted to kind of, you know, give it a full year at it. Um, didn't really work out, but like I said, I could always fall back on being a setup man. That's what I was, you know, having a lot of success doing anyway. It came natural to me, and starting was just kind of just something I did for a little bit. Yeah, now as, as, as like you, you, for the most part of your career, I mean, looking, you were pretty much a good, uh, you know, good strikeout pitcher. What did what did you consider was your best asset? Was it was it your fastball? Was it your off speed stuff? Your slider a little bit? What did you think was your biggest your biggest asset as a, either a starter or a relief pitcher? Well, I guess I guess my my biggest asset was I was just I pitched just just about every day. I pitched two, three, four days in a row. But as far as my my pitch selection, you know, I had. I tell people I'm not. I didn't have the Mariano Rivera type fastball, but my ball did cut naturally. 
And I think that's why I had a lot of success is my ball was, you know, moving a lot. And, uh, you know, I threw above average fastball and had a slider. So I would just say that the movement on my fastball allowed me to miss the barrel of bat. Um, I pitched in the strike zone, but yet I could I could throw the ball over the middle of the plate with some type of velocity and movement where, where hitters didn't barrel me up. Yeah, that sounds about right, man. Now, you know, I – one thing I remember of you, like, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a Mets fan. I was I was actually at at um, Shea Stadium. I remember a game in 2005, and you were pitching for the Phillies. It was a game between the Mets and the Phillies. There ends up being like about a three hour rain delay, and I remember you were actually a relief pitcher. You gave up a home run to Carlos Beltran late in the game. You have any recollection of that game at all? Uh, yeah, I do actually. Yeah, I was a pretty far home run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember actually. I remember being in the stands. I mean, it was literally about like a two-hour rain delay. I can't believe I ended up staying out throughout the whole thing. But yeah, yeah, that was that was, that was definitely something special. Listen, Terry, I want to thank you a lot for having some time today. Hopefully, I can speak to you again sometime in the near future, buddy. Okay, thank you. Hey, no problem, man. That's Terry Adams, former pitcher for the uh, Phillies. He pitched for the Cubs from 1995 to 1999, the Dodgers 2000-2001, the Phillies in uh, looks like 2002, 2003, and 2005. He had, he had a pretty good career, man. He said he set it up pretty good. He he came up as a starter, and what a lot of pitchers do, they end up doing a kind of back and forth between starting and relieving. Because let's let's be honest, I mean, you're in there, you want to give it everything you got, you want to help teams in any sort of role, and you never know what kind of opportunities come up and. Uh, Terry had a very good year in 2001 with the Dodgers. I mean, he came up as a, you know as a starter midseason, ended up getting the job done. So you know, a very good job there. But uh, you know, when we first started out by talking about, it, we were hitting up on the uh, the NLCS, a great finish between the uh, Giants and the Reds in game number five. The Giants are going on to the NLCS, you know, with a with a six four victory over the Reds. Uh, Jay Bruce, a big eight pitch at bat, you know, eight nine foul balls and stuff like that ends up. You know, uh, you know the Reds fall a little bit short, and I tell you what a real, re- real crazy series that was, with the Giants dropping the first two games at home, and then winning the next three in Cincinnati to go on to the NLCS, and that takes us on to a game tonight, and of course the Nationals and the Cardinals tied at one as we go to the bottom of the fourth there, uh, Kyle Loesch pitching for the uh, Cardinals against Ross, Ross Detweiler, but. An exciting finish for, you know, not just if you're a Yankee fan, but if you're, if you're a Major League Baseball fan and you enjoy the postseason like I do, just to be up there and kind of watch the way that fin- game finished last night between the Orioles and the Yankees, it looked like the Orioles were going to pull it off. The Orioles were up 2-1, ninth inning. They got their ace closer, Jim Johnson, with 50 saves in there. And the Yankees make, of course, and I'm sure you heard it 100 times on the radio and, you know, of course, earlier today on the MTR radio network, but... Alex Rodriguez, due to bat, Joe Girardi makes the gutsy move by pinch hitting Raul Abanez for him, and one of those one of those moves that certainly, if it failed, if it didn't work out, if Abanez strikes out in that spot, we're talking all day. How could you pitch hit for a Rod? And it, it's it's funny because it's the way the fans work here, man. It's the way the fans act. You know, they're gonna second guess everything, and as many fans as wanted to be out there to criticize. Uh, Alex Rodriguez for his lack of production, not a real good season. Of course, the injuries and stuff like that, and for him getting paid what he's getting paid. You know, these same fans that wanted him down in the batting order or even benched in 647 regular season home runs. You know, it's insane. And the move that Joe Girardi makes ends up benefiting the Yankees 100%. 
And it might have been that 100-to-1 chance or that small chance that existed really out of anything. But Raul Abanez hits the dramatic home run. And I'm sure, listen, to not be a Yankee fan, I was kind of – I got that tickly feeling as far as I was watching something special last night. And I'm sure Yankee fans enjoyed it more than anything. A great, great postseason moment in the history of the franchise. And this is a, this is a team that's had – a ton of great postseason moments from Don Larson's perfect game to, you know, the games in 2001 against the Arizona Diamondbacks where, they, you know, they took Young Young Kim deep two games in a row. You know, a lot of great moments in the history of this franchise. And I'll tell you, this game will rank up there. The only way it won't is if the Baltimore Orioles come back in this series and take game four and game five. And if you follow my Bases Empty blog on JohnPielli.com, it was after game one after game one of the series, that I said the Orioles weren't going to do it. And the way that things felt in uh, game one with the team tied 2-2 going into the top of the ninth, Yankees scoring those five runs off the closer, I thought it was over then. The Orioles came back to win a close game in game two, but I'll tell you, if I said it before, I'm 100% convinced that the Baltimore Orioles are done right now. If I wasn't before... I am now. Not only did the Orioles drop a game with their bullpen, the bullpen that they are known for, that is their biggest asset. Now, not only did they blow it in game one, but Jim Johnson and his 50 saves gave up that home run to Raul Albanez. And, of course, the home run he hits later on wins the game for the Yankees as they walk off winning the game by the final of 3-2. to two. But I'll tell you, if that doesn't take the wind out of the Orioles' sails, then I really don't know what I'm talking about here. I, I tell you, I had no faith in the Orioles after they dropped game one in that series. I know they came back in one game two. And honestly, if they take game four, game five, anything can happen. I understand that. But I can't see this team, number one, being able to give the same energy and intensity to feel like they got a chance in game four. And number two, the most important thing, and I'll, I'll repeat this, this is the most important thing, they cannot have faith in their closer, Jim Johnson. This is a bullpen from Pedro Strobe to everybody else involved, Darren O'Day, everybody that got involved in that bullpen has carried them. Their bullpen has pitched tremendously this season. They've done a phenomenal job. But once a closer gets burned in the postseason, he's not going to have it again. And I'll tell you, the prime example was Jim Johnson giving up those runs in the first game of the series. Once a closer, especially a successful closer, gets burned in one of these postseason games, I tell you, you're on pins and needles when you go to him again. And that's what happened in game three. They gave the ball back to Jim Johnson. Buck Showalter had the faith in him. He absolutely did, and he should have. He should have kept it. He should have kept the faith in him. I don't expect him to change it and go to a different reliever in that spot. But I'll tell you, sometimes once it happens, once the wind gets blown out of your sails when you're a closer and you've had all that success in a regular season, I'll tell you, man, it, it's a different game. And I'll tell you, if the Orioles have a lead here in game four, I would be really, really nervous watching Jim Johnson in the ninth inning here. The Yankees have got to him twice in this series. And I know he had a lot of success during the regular season. He stopped a lot of games against the Yankees during the regular season. But this is a guy that is shot. He is absolutely beaten 
He has got that look of a pitcher that's not going to have any confidence. And it's not the first pitcher to happen to. Remember Byung Young Kim in 2001. Remember he gave up that home run to, to Tino Martinez. And afterwards, they went back to him the next game. And I'll tell you, he had the look in that game. If you remember in 2001, Byung Young Kim, when Buck Showalter, the same manager of the Baltimore Orioles, was man, it was uh, I'm sorry, was I'm sorry, my bad. Buck Showalter is gone, but you know the the look that Kim had on his face when he came in that game. I tell you, it was it was crazy. But we're gonna put that on hold. We're gonna welcome in our next guest. That's gonna be uh, Robert Ford, who was a broadcaster for the Kansas City Royals, and also uh, from uh, 610 Sports in KC. Robert John Pielli, past ball show MTR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. No problem. Hey, listen, man. Uh, first, the first thing I want to hit up because uh, you know you're you're over in the Kansas City area. I wanted to get a little uh, bit of your insight. Um, the, the Kansas City Chiefs in that game uh, last Sunday, Matt Castle ends up getting hurt. The fans are actually cheering for for him to be hurt. What was your opinion on that? Well, I wasn't at the game, but um, from what I what I what I saw of it, it seemed to me like they were more cheering that Brady Quinn was coming in. Uh, and it wasn't so much that Matt Castle was hurt. I mean, it's, it's it's so much more complicated that here in Kansas City with the Chiefs because there's a lot of this dislike for Scott Pioli and the way he's handled things since he's been here. Uh, there's a lot of dislike for Matt Castle as a result of that because he's Scott Pioli's guy, and Pioli not only traded for him, which I think is very justifiable, but then gave him a big contract and paid him like – uh, a starting quarterback, which I don't think was even justifiable even at the time. Uh, and so I think it was less about Matt Castle being hurt and more about uh, there being a, a quarterback change and kind of the fans letting Scott Pioli and the Chiefs know that they're not happy with the way they've been doing business. Well, actually, that's a very interesting perspective. And I've heard, you know, you hear a lot in the, you know, in the media and stuff like that. And it really it got a lot of national attention because uh, the perception was that the fans were cheering for Castle being hurt. But that, that definitely throws a different perspective in there. They're actually cheering for Brady Quinn to come in and maybe make a quarterback change in that organization. I think, I think it's a very good perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, and again, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't 70,000 people. Like some, like, you know, Eric Winston had that rant after the game. There weren't even that many people at the game at that point, uh, even though it was still competitive. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think it was more a case of, I mean, obviously, you, it's never right to cheer for someone who's hurt. There's no question about it. I, I understand why it's misconstrued uh, and why people felt that uh, Matt Cat, that it was the people cheering that Matt Castle was hurt. I'm sure there were some who were, but I think the majority of people who were cheering were more cheering uh, for the fact that, that Brady Quinn was coming into the game. It's unfortunate that it, that it had to happen the way it did, uh, but, I mean, to say that, that Chiefs fans have been dying for a quarterback change for about two or three weeks would be a major understatement. Nah, absolutely, man. And uh, obviously, if things continue to not go well, I wouldn't be surprised if Brady Quinn was in there, you know, even if uh, Matt Castle is fully healthy. And once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with Robert Ford, who is, is a reporter and radio personality for 610 Sports KC. You can follow Robert at RA Ford 3. And uh, Robert, as 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 the playoffs start now, a lot of attention is to the St. Louis Cardinals, the uh, defending World Series champions. Now, 
Tell me a little bit about the rivalry between the Royals and the Cardinals. Is it as big, you know, in that region as it is between, you know, Mets and Yankees in New York or White Sox and Cubs in Chicago or even the two teams in Los Angeles? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, I mean, I think it's more of a feud, and I think it more it's more meaning to Kansas City than it is to people in St. Louis. I mean, the Cardinals, you know, they have the world championships, obviously won the one last year. They, they've had a tremendous amount of success throughout their history, let alone – in the last 20 years plus, uh, and uh, they don't, I don't think they really see the Royals as much of a threat or as much of a rival, but I think that uh, certainly Kansas City Royals fans do. They measure themselves in many cases by how they do uh, against the St. Louis Cardinals, and also there's a lot of resentment uh, toward the Cardinals for Royals fans because, uh, you know, the St. Louis and Kansas City are only four hours apart, and uh, there are a lot of Cardinals fans in Kansas City and in the Kansas City area, that was true. Uh, you know, even before the Royals really started struggling over the last 20 years, and it's become even more prevalent now. So, I think it's something that means a lot more to the Royals. When I think of a rivalry, I think of something that that carries equal weight for both sides. I mean, like you look at the Yankees-Mets rivalry, and that's what I'm very familiar with, being from New York and having grown up a Mets fan. Uh, you know, that that means a lot to both sides. Uh, you could argue it means a little more to Mets fans, but it means a lot to both sides. I think same thing with the Cubs and the White Sox, but I don't think you can say that about the the Royals and the Cardinals. Yeah, so it's more more of like a, a royal kind of royal fan, like animosity towards the success of the Cardinals, maybe a little bit. Absolutely, and just the just the the prevalence that the Cardinals have in the state of Missouri. I mean, there are more Cardinals fans in Missouri than there are Royals fans. I mean, even obviously there are more Royals fans in the Kansas City or in the area than Cardinals fans. But uh, And that's just yet another team that comes to Kauffman Stadium uh, that, that brings a lot of fans. I mean, whenever the Red Sox or Yankees come to town, there are always a lot of fans of those teams. And so you throw the Cardinals in there as well. And I think it frustrates a lot of Royals fans that, that that's the way it's been. And, you know, my argument to that is, well, the Royals need to start winning for, for that to change. Yeah, and you know that's it's like that in any market. I mean, any team that's having trouble like that, really, the only way to turn around something like that is to to win. Now, now onto the Royals a little bit. You know, this is a team that that has built a good young nucleus over the last you know several years. They've obviously because of their lack of success, they have built up a pretty decent you know pile of prospects through the draft. Tell us a little bit about the 2012 season. I mean, I actually had them doing a little better than they did, but. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the Royals and their trials and tribulations of this year. Well, it really comes down to more than anything to starting pitching. Uh, the Royals just don't have enough of it in terms of uh, quality starters at the major league level or, or depth uh, in the system. They have a couple of prospects who are close, and one of their most promising prospects, Danny Duffy, he went down after six starts last year and, and missed the, the rest of the season with Tommy John surgery. He's not going to be back until May or June at the earliest. Uh, so that, that was a very significant blow. Felipe Paulino, who the Royals got uh, in a trade basically for nothing from Colorado uh, during last season, uh, who had really struggled in his major league career before that, pitched well in the latter part of last year for the Royals and was off to a great start this year with an ERA of uh, just under 1-7 over seven starts. And he wound up having Tommy John surgery, too. So uh, within a few weeks, the Royals lost the two guys who were their best in the, in the starting rotation, or certainly their most promising. And you look at the rest of the rotation, and Bruce Chen, I mean, he kind of is what he is at this point in his career, but 
He really had a lot of problems with with the long ball. He led the team with 11 wins, but he also lost 14 games. Look, Coach Aver Royals have been waiting for him to figure it out. It hasn't happened. Uh, they were hoping he, he'd be much better this year than he had been. Will Smith certainly is promising. Uh, 22-year-old who came up, made 16 starts, and shows had some ups and downs, but certainly profiles as a guy who can be a good back end of the rotation starter. Hey, Jonathan Sanchez, who they got from Elke Cabrera from the Giants to start the year, and Sanchez was, was just awful uh, before finally being traded to the Rockies uh, after 12 starts. And uh, the guy that the Royals got from the Rockies, Jeremy Guthrie, wound up being great for the Royals after really struggling for Colorado, and he's uh, their, their main target in free agency this offseason. But, uh, yeah, the starting pitching was the biggest problem. I mean, you can talk about the inconsistency of the young offense. Uh, this team should have been better than 12th in run scored. Uh, and 13th in home runs, even playing in at Kauffman Stadium, which is not a hitter-friendly ballpark. Uh, you can talk about uh, this the struggles of the defense at times, but I think all in all the defense is going to be pretty good. You can talk about the injuries to catcher Salvador Perez and Lorenzo Cain in center field for much of the year, but really to me this season came down to starting pitching uh, as being the biggest reason why the Royals struggled as much as they did. Yeah, absolutely, man. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with Robert Ford who does some work for the Kansas City Royals and uh, 6'10 Sports in KC. Uh, now, the Royals obviously got off to a bad start. They had that 12-game that losing streak, if I'm not mistaken. What do you think was the impact on that towards the rest of the season? Did, did that kind of put them in a place where they're like, all right, may, maybe we're not going to be good again? Did that do anything to take away their confidence that maybe they had coming into the season thinking they might be a sleeper team? Yeah, the 12-game losing streak wasn't as impactful as many would think because, yeah, the Royals, they, they had the 12 straight losses. They lost. Uh, they had a 10-game homestand. They lost all 10 games and started off 3-14. and 14, But the Royals played better than 500 ball from that point in late April until late June. So they, 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 they were able to right their ship somewhat over a couple of months with, with really good baseball and, and at least winning baseball. Uh, what really killed them was – uh, June 30th or June 29th, they they won the first game of a series in Minnesota against the Twins. June 30th, they had a day-night doubleheader against the Twins. Now going into that day-night doubleheader, the Royals were five and a half back in the Central. Now they had three teams ahead of them, and it was a pipe dream to think that they might contend in the division. But five and a half back is five and a half back, and at that point, the Royals were four games under 500, uh, playing a doubleheader against the Twins team. Granted, in Minnesota, but against a Twins team that was dreadful all year long. Well, the Royals get swept in that in that day-night doubleheader. That was on a Saturday, June the 30th. The sun, that Sunday, they lost again to the Twins, and that started a stretch in which the Royals lost 21 of 27 games. They didn't start to right the ship again until the, the very end of July and had a pretty good August before struggling again in September. So when I look at the season, I don't look at the 12-game losing streak as much as I do losing 21 of 27 in July. That was very, very significant for this ball club. And I think that hurt this team more than anything else this year. Now, a lot of times when uh, teams have a lot of ups and downs and have significant down spells, uh, the manager does take a lot of uh, uh, you know, criticism. Uh, what, what would you think is uh, Ned Yost's position now? Is he on shaky ground as far as going into the 2013 season? Well, I think he needs to. He can't afford another 12-game losing streak in April. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, I think, um, you know, when you have a team that that didn't quite meet even the expectations that Yosef set for them during the winter meetings last year, he was talking about how he expects the team to be well over 500. Now, 
that may have just been the optimism of the hot stove talking, but but still, obviously, the expectations for this team were much higher than 72 wins and 90 losses. Uh, and I think if Ned Yost and the Royals don't get off to a good start next year, that's going to be a big problem for Ned Yost. Uh, and uh, that, that's something that he cannot afford to happen. He can't afford to have another 12-game losing streak and another 3-14 and 14 start uh, in 2013 like he did in 2012. I'm of the belief, I generally believe that a manager can only help you so much or only hurt you so much. I mean, a manager certainly does can make a difference, but the way I judge a manager is how do you handle the clubhouse? How do you manage personalities? And uh, everything that I've gotten from talking with players and, and talking with people around the game is that, you know, guys, these guys like playing for Ned Yost. They, they, they don't, you know, they're not, they're not quitting on him. He hasn't lost the clubhouse. Uh, there was a stretch when they really struggled in July when, you know, the Royals had like three or four team meetings in a two-week stretch when you really started to wonder but they were able to bounce back after that. Uh, so I don't think Ned Yost is the problem for this team. Uh, with that said, I mean, look, you, you know, the old saying goes you can't fire all the players. And you know, if the Royals struggle again out of the gate next year, then uh, while well, the Royals aren't going to fire all the players, they're going to look to make a move with Ned Yost. Yeah, fair enough, man. And I think uh, you know a lot has to do with uh, Yost's relationship with Dayton Moore. Of course, they both go back to their time in Atlanta when, when uh, Ned was a, an assistant coach. Now, on, on to this offseason, what do you think are the Royals' top priorities going into, let's say, the winter meetings or the 2012 offseason going into 2013? Well, they only have one priority, and that is to improve the starting rotation. Yeah, uh, that, That's the bottom line. I mean, yeah, there are other things they, I think they would like to do. I think they would like to get a better right-handed hitting outfielder off the bench. I think they'd like to have a more stability at second base rather than have Johnny Giovatella and Chris Getz compete for that spot. But it all comes down to the starting pitching, and that was the biggest problem with this team. And also, you look at the rest of the lineup, other than at second base and in right field, uh, the lineup's pretty much set with, with young players. Now, in right field, you, you had Jeff Francoeur, who's uh, owed $7.5 million next year and will probably start the year in right field. But they have you know, top prospect Will Byers waiting in the wings, and Myers will probably play the majority of the year. Uh, with Kansas City next year. So the right field thing isn't a big deal. Second base, you can kind of get by with that. Uh, but the starting pitching is the big thing. Now, Jeremy Guffey was very impressive when he came over from Colorado, uh, looked very, very sharp. And uh, after looking at his numbers in Colorado compared to the rest of his career, it's easier to, to kind of look at those as a blip in the radar. So the Royals have made it clear publicly and privately that they want to bring Jeremy Guthrie back. Guthrie is going to be 34 at the start of next year, and he's made it clear that he's going to test the waters in free agency, although I think the Royals have a good chance of re-signing him. But, I mean, this is going to be Guthrie's last chance at a really significant payday, so can't really begrudge him for, for going into free agency. Uh, so getting Guthrie's their number one priority, the Royals have said that they want to get at least three veteran starting pitchers signed or traded for this offseason. I think it's going to be tough to get three unless they're able to get one on a one-year deal, which could be possible. Uh, but I think it's certainly likely that they can get two uh, solid veteran starters with decent track records of giving you innings and giving you a solid outing more often than not. Now, does does anybody come to mind when you're thinking like adding, uh, you know, maybe a starting pitcher from another organization or something like that, a free agent or maybe somebody in trade that comes to your mind as a possibility? Well, I mean, other than Guthrie, I think the guy, obviously, that a lot of people are looking at is Anibal Sanchez, yeah. who uh, the Marlins traded to the Tigers. And the Tigers basically said that they, they saw him as a rental 
uh, I'm not necessarily going to look to resign him. And with the money they have committed to their pitching and to other parts of their team, it's unlikely that that they would they would have the funds to pay Sanchez. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, you look at Sanchez. I mean, the number one guy in the in the free agent market is Zach Greinke, but Greinke's not coming to Kansas City. The Royals weren't very happy with the way things ended when he basically asked for a trade. Uh, there are many people in the Royals clubhouse during that 2011 season who thought that Greinke didn't exactly give his best, uh, or at the end of the 2010 season, I should say, that Greinke didn't exactly give his best in the latter part of the year when the season was lost for the Royals. Uh, and, and also, too, I don't think Greinke wants to come back to Kansas City. So Greinke isn't an option. Uh, Anibal Sanchez is the next best guy, and I think you know, the Royals are certainly going to make an offer and, and try to sign him. Uh, but the question is going to be what sort of money is Sanchez going to be expecting? I mean, I think at this point you look at him as a number three with a chance to be a number two or maybe even a one. But is he going to want number three starter money or is he going to want number one starter money? Uh, and, and I think that's going to be the big question. And it only takes one team to think you're a number one starter for you to get that sort of money. Uh, but the Royals are certainly going to, to look at Anibal Sanchez. There have been reports that they're interested in Kyle Loesch, uh, who's, a, who's a free agent after this year, obviously, has had a very good year with the St. Louis Cardinals this year, and uh, certainly a guy that would be interesting, although not a guy you'd want to commit a ton of years to, considering his age. Um, and then there, there are a bunch of other guys who are somewhat intriguing. There's uh, Carlos Villanueva with the Blue Jays, who's never been a full-time starter, but when he started, he's been halfway decent. You know, there are other guys like Kevin Correa, who I think has a chance maybe to be be decent uh, with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Sean Markham's a guy who's intriguing, although he's not a hard thrower, and he's had some arm problems this year that forced him to miss some time with the Brewers. And the other thing about Markham is he's a Kansas City area native. I don't know how much that would matter to him. Uh, in terms of coming here. but So there, there are some intriguing guys out there, but I think uh, obviously number one is Jeremy Guthrie, and then I think the Royals certainly would love to get Anibal Sanchez. And if, if the Royals are able to get Guthrie and Sanchez into this rotation, I think uh, most Royals fans would consider it to be a very successful offseason. Now going back on to the Royals fans, are the, are the fans kind of feeling the, the rebuilding mode, which obviously has been happening for at least the last 10 years or so? Or are they at a point where they're expecting this team to either start winning next year or that's it? Well, I think the bottom line is this team needs to start winning games because um, you know, they haven't won games in 20 years on a consistent basis. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, just to give you an example, this year they won 72 games. Last year the Royals won 71 games. This is the first time that the Royals have had back-to-back seasons in which they've won more than 70 games. So it's 92 and 93. Wow. So it's not like this team has been treading water. I mean, they've been bad for, for the last for the last couple of decades. And a lot of fans are sick of it. Even the savvier fans who paid attention to the fact that David Glass has spent more money on the farm system and, and on signing guys since State Moore took over in 2006, even those fans are like, you know what, there needs to be, we need to see some results. We need to see this team won at the major league level. I mean, Baseball America said the Royals had the best farm system in the game a couple of years ago. Well, fans want to see uh, want to see that lead to wins at the big league level, and I don't blame them. And it's to the point now where there is nothing that Dave Moore or David Glass or Ned Yost or anybody else associated with the Royals can say that's going to make the fans happy. The only thing that's going to make the Royals fans happy at this point is if they win games. And uh, this 2013 year 
is going to be such a big year for the Kansas City Royals because um, if they don't start winning games, then I think you're, you're going to see uh, fan disenchantment increase even more than it has over the last few years. And uh, it could, could, mean, could mean the loss of jobs for some people. I mean, obviously we've talked about Ned Yost can't afford a poor start. But, I mean, you know, once the GM fires a, a manager, then I think people start looking at the GM as well. Uh, so that, that could make for some uncomfortable times for, for Dayton Moore also. Uh, but this 2013 season is extremely pivotal for the Kansas City Royals and for, for them to, to show their fans that this is a winning ball club. Now, le- last year, uh, Eric Hosmer kind of had a little bit of a down year after his very good start in 2011. Tell us a little bit about him, his progress through last season, and what we could expect from Eric Hosmer in uh, 2013. Well, I think Eric Hosmer is going to be a superstar, and I don't say that very often about about guys who are 22 years old and have played two years of Major League Baseball uh, and hit 232 in their second year. But I think Eric Hosmer is going to be a superstar. He's an excellent defensive first baseman, gold glove caliber over there, uh, and he has tremendous power to all fields. Uh, had a great year, obviously, in 2011. Got a lot of Rookie of the Year votes and uh, looked like he was well on his way. Well, this year... He got off to uh, – he, he hit the ball hard early on, but uh, he was hitting in the bad luck. Uh, it was a lot of line outs. He lined into a triple play. <laughs> I mean, it was just – that's just the way things started off for Hosmer. And Eric admitted that um, after getting off to that start, when he's hitting the ball hard with nothing to show for it, he started pressing a little bit and got out of his approach. And what we saw was instead of a guy who is really good at going – at waiting back on a ball and hitting the ball to all fields – we saw a guy who was out in front of everything, uh, was hitting a lot of weak ground balls to the right side, was pulling off everything, wasn't hitting anything to the opposite field, and uh, really struggled. He started to get back to using all fields uh, last uh, two, two and a half months of the season, wasn't hitting for the power that he has shown in the past, but the fact that he was getting back to using all fields was uh, was significant, certainly. And you know, Royals uh, got rid of their hitting coach, Kevin Seitzer. Uh, they decided after the season not to renew his contract. And um, some have speculated that part of that reason is because of Hosmer's regression. And I don't know how much of that factored into it. And, frankly, I don't know that that was uh, uh, Seitzer's fault. But uh, certainly it cannot be understated because a lot of what the Royals team hopes to do is really predicated on Eric Hosmer being the sort of player that the Royals thought he could be when they made him the third overall pick in the draft back in uh, 2008. Yeah, no, listen, I mean, I think we, we, we all see that uh, Hosmer can be, a, can be a superstar, and hopefully uh, things get better. Um, I think he's going to be a great player for a long time. Listen, Robert, I want to thank you for your time today. Hopefully I could get you on the show sometime in the near future. Absolutely, anytime. Hey, thanks, man. And that was uh, Robert Ford, who is uh, a uh, Royals uh, reporter and radio personality for 610 Sports and KC. And, of course, you can follow Robert at RA Ford 3. I'm going to take a real quick break. Uh, We'll be back to pretty much finish off the first hour right here. Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. And, yeah, once again, we're hitting some technical difficulties, but uh, one of these days we'll figure this out. But, um, yeah, Pass Ball Show, John Pielli here, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to check out my blog, johnpielli.com, uh, Bases Empty Blog. I've been really breaking down the uh, the over-unders in the American League. And 
you know, when it comes to predicting over-unders, I don't think anybody can really predict, you know, them with any really shade of success. And as I finished off the American League over the last three days, I had a 6-8 and eight record out of the 14 teams. And you look at the teams like the Oakland A's and the Baltimore Orioles, who nobody had any faith in coming into the season, and all of a sudden they end up being winners. Nobody was going to see that from the beginning. Teams like Detroit, who disappointed. You know, Los Angeles, Angels of Anaheim, disappointed. The Texas Rangers, in spite of getting 93 wins, were kind of a disappointment as they end up losing in a one-game playoff. So when you really predict an over-unders, it's really hard to, to, to figure it out. And I'll tell you, you know, a team like the White Sox, who, you know, people really had them winning no more than 75 games. Their over-under was about 71. There's a lot of, a lot of teams that you really couldn't see having a lot of success this year and end up kind of getting a job done. And, uh, you know, you look at other teams that went the other way, the Indians, the Red Sox, the Blue Jays. You know, and only, only teams like, you know, Seattle and the Yankees kind of stuck to what you kind of expected. And when I was predicting the amount of wins, I got the Yankees right with 95, the Rays right with 90, and uh, the Mariners right with 75. But let's be honest. I mean, there's nobody, no team that you're going to go out there and be able to predict how much success or how much they're going to struggle during the course of the season because there's so many factors. I mean, teams end up developing. Like, you know, as you watch the Baltimore Orioles tonight play the Yankees at 730, uh, trying to uh, stay alive in the ALDS, nobody was expecting them to be in that position. You know, the Oakland A's, who at home, playing game five against the Detroit Tigers, a chance to win that series, a chance to beat the Detroit Tigers. Not many people predicted them to be in that position. And I, for one, was very hard on the A's coming off their offseason, trading Gio Gonzalez and Trevor Cahill and Andrew Bailey, kind of sending a message that they didn't plan to contend this year. And I took that really as a team that expected to bring a bunch of young players in, kind of rebuild this year and probably next year. And really, I didn't expect anything out of them. I expected them to be one of the worst teams in the league, and I couldn't have been any more wrong. And that's a very good token. And I know a lot of people want to give Billy Bean credit. I don't think Billy Bean had an idea that this team was going to be as good as it was. I don't think Billy Bean was the guy that's like, hey, I'll trade these guys and show you what happens. I think Billy Bean was trying to rebuild here. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on with the stadium there. They want to move out of the Coliseum. They want to maybe move to San Jose. They want to get the approval from the San Francisco Giants to move there. Listen, it, it is about the future with the Oakland Athletics. So Billy Bean cannot sell me that this team was as successful as it was because of his decision. He wanted to break down this team. He wanted to load it up, load up on the minor league system and make this team a better team in the future when they move out of the Coliseum in Oakland. So I cannot buy at all that Billy Bean was the main reason that this team was as successful as it was. Yes, he deserves some credit because he brought in Josh Reddick. He signed Cespedes. He came over and did, did very good moves that ended up helping the Oakland Athletics. But the credit goes to the manager, and that's Bob Melvin. Bob Melvin has gone out there and had success in other places, whether it was Seattle or Arizona. I know he didn't win World Series there, but he took teams that were terrible and made them better. And he did the same thing in Oakland. He took over for Bob Guerin last year when there was clubhouse issues there. The team was down on the manager. It was time for a managerial change. And I'll give Billy Bean credit for hiring Bob Melvin. 
who's a very good baseball guy. He is extremely underrated. And Melvin has done what he has done in other places. He's gotten the team to improve to a point where they're winning. And the Oakland Athletics, listen, I mean, what do I expect tonight against Justin Verlander? I think it'll be a tall order. They got a benefit because they're playing at home. I like, you know, and and as much as it is a benefit, is also a uh, detriment that they're playing at home because not a lot of people go out to support them. You know, the A's are consistently amongst the worst in in the American League when it comes to attendance. So I, I mean, you know, you talk about a home field advantage. Yes, they get last licks, and I think that's always beneficial, particularly in a in a series deciding game. You want to get the last licks if the game's tied, of course, in the ninth inning and past. But I'll tell you, the Oakland A's don't have much of a home field advantage. And going up against Justin Verlander, to me, I see as a tall order. Now, I could be proven wrong. Game fives, game sevens, anything can happen. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if the Oakland Athletics won tonight. You know, maybe Verlander gets off to a bad start. Maybe Jared Parker goes out there and throws a gem. It's quite a possibility. And like I said, game five, anything can happen. But I see the Tigers winning tonight and ending the Oakland A's season. But let's be honest, who expect the A's to be in this position? The fact that the A's are playing a game five in the ALDS this year with a chance to go to the ALCS, let's be honest, nobody predicted that to happen. So using that same thought of logic, yeah, listen, the A's have every chance to take out the Detroit Tigers. And I know my Yankee fan listeners are praying and hoping that it's the Oakland A's that face the Yankees in the next series and not Detroit. Detroit is very top-heavy, as, it, as it's shown during the season. And they, maybe they underachieved to a certain extent. But they're still the Detroit Tigers. They still got Miguel Cabrera, the Triple Crown winner, Prince Fielder, and Verlander. Guys like that, I'm telling you, put more fear in you than Josh Reddick, Yonetas Cespedes, and Jared Parker. It's pretty obvious. We all know that. But I tell you, I do see the Oakland Athletics. Can they get some guys on early against Justin Verlander? And let's be honest, if you ever have a chance to beat Justin Verlander, you're going to have to get to him early. And Verlander is one of those pitchers that if you could get a run or two in the first inning, maybe you can mess him up early on in the game. You just don't want the game to be too close as he gets in his groove. Justin Verlander is one of the only pitchers in Major League Baseball that you see the velocity go up on his fastball as the game moves on. And I tell you, there's nothing that you could do about that. When he when he gets it going, you know, when he's throwing 98-99 in the eighth inning, I tell you, it's a tough matchup. And the A's got to hang in there, hopefully get themselves in a position to win a close one today. Otherwise, to me, it's going to be a tough road. I mean, I really, I really see the A's having problems tonight. But on to... On to the Yankee Stadium and the Orioles, and of course the terrible news we hear today about uh, Yankees manager Joe Girardi. His father, Jerry, passes away at the age of 81. Uh, of course, my condolences and everybody from the NTR Radio Network, you know, condolences to his family and wish Joe the best. Uh, Joe's going to toughen it out, which, I mean, I, I find it amazing that he is, he's still willing to manage tonight. I think from a personal level, I think that would be something tough that I, that I would find it very difficult to do. And, uh, you know, credit to Joe and, uh, you know, representing the Yankees like he always has. He's going to go out there, you know, do what he can to help the Yankees put the, together the team. 
and you know the effort tonight to beat the Orioles, end this series in Game Four, and move on hopefully to the ALCS. But um, yeah, listen, let's be honest. First hour, very solid stuff going on here, and um, we're gonna be back in a little bit. Second hour, pass ball show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Talk about the history.